You're tuned in to The Open Door on Ross FM 94.6. Presented by myself, Margaret McHugh, every Thursday between 9 and 10am. The Open Door talk show brings together all communities from near and far by giving them a platform to share their stories of life as it was, as it is. You will hear the voices of those who speak about the good, the bad, what unites or divides our nation and what can we achieve by joining together with one vision of an all-inclusive plan. I'm joined by Catherine Corliss, she's a historian from Tume in County Galway. Catherine, people should be aware of your name by now. Tell me how you became involved in the Tume Mother and Baby Home story. Well, I'll do my best now. It's, uh, I started out really in 2012, I would say. And um, I knew a little about the home from being a child that went to school in the Mercy Convent. And uh, as children, we walked past that home. I lived out the country about two and a half miles, and we passed it twice a day, going to school and coming home again. But uh, at that time, all we knew about it was that it was a home, we thought, for children, for orphans that had no mammies and daddies, and uh, those, those huge uh, 10-foot high walls, and um, you might get a peep in a long, uh, an odd time. There was a, on the Dublin Road, there was a, a big green wooden gate and a small uh, wooden, a small, uh, smaller gate on that big gate. And uh, sometimes a little gate would be left open and uh, you, could see, you could see in, but you wouldn't see much. Mm-hmm. Just, you would just see a bit of a building. We never saw any children or anything outside playing. And um, across the road then there was the race course, the tomb race course, and of course, they had 10-foot high walls as well. So it was a kind of an eerie place to be walking the school. There was about maybe 200 yards for a child. It seemed very long. You had this big, long passageway. Now, that's as little I knew about the Chum home, except that uh, in, in our class, in first class, I remember, um, I just vaguely remember home children. And uh, we knew they were a bit different from the rest of us because uh, they were kept separate. And uh, the nuns never really asked them anything. We, of course, we thought that was great. They never had to answer questions. They weren't really included in the class. And uh, they left earlier in the evening than we did, and they came in later in the morning. Because uh, it's only years later, um, you, you, I realised that that was because they didn't want us mingling with the home babies. And, so very uh, little would have been known about their lives, really. Uh, not at all. We didn't know a thing. Because... Um, being out the country, I suppose, my parents as well, they wouldn't have known that much. Uh, but I, pay, I, I believe the people in the area, now you hear a few rumours of stories about the poor home babies and things like that, and you hear of beatings and crying and all that kind of thing. But uh, out the country, um, uh, we were self-sufficient and my mother would have gone to town once a week. And what she needed for the following week would be, she could carry it in two bags in the handbars of the bicycle. This was back now in the 50s and 60s because we're totally self-sufficient otherwise. And uh, she wouldn't be mingling with townspeople or anything like that. So, I mean, we were, we weren't apart really. So I would doubt my own parents would know, but they'd know very little of what went on in that home, only that mm-hmm. it was a, a house for orphans. So, well, I mean, the, the home babies disappeared then um, after the medical communion in first class. They were gone and you didn't ask questions. Uh, many, many, many uh, people remember asking the nuns, where did this one go and that one go. And uh, they were told they were just gone to another school. So that was it. Uh, time went on. I mean, when you're that age, you don't take that much notice. You're kind of wrapped up in your friends in your own world and you have no understanding really of anything else. So um, I got a great interest in family history then um, later on in life. Okay. Uh, I think it was, when I think back now, uh, I was so passionate about the home babies. Um, my mother was, uh, she came from Northern Ireland, and I always felt her to be um, a very good woman, but I found her kind of, she found it hard to get emotionally involved with any of us. Uh, she, you know, she's good natured, but uh, she didn't have it in her to be, you know, to be uh, kind of to communicate with us at an emotional level. And I noticed her, uh, I always felt she was carrying the world, the weight of the world on her shoulders. And um, of course, she would never. She, she never talked about her past, and I suppose I was always a curious child. Mm-hmm. And I used to ask her about um, my granny and granddad. They'd be her parents, and she said they were all dead now. And um, she got out of it that way because she was from Northern Ireland. She was from County Armagh, and by coming down um, to Dublin with the family that she worked for, and then to Tuam, 
she kind of left her, her past behind her. And uh, I soon learned that she didn't like to go back there and talk about anything. So I suppose that kind of curiosity was always in me because my father was from the area and I knew all his people and aunts and all that kind of thing. I knew all about him and relatives and they were more or less in the vicinity. And it seemed a bit strange to me that we didn't know my mother and we didn't know a thing about her. So of course, I picked up a bit of courage when she died then because I had realized by now that she didn't like talking about her past and it more or less kind of put her in a bad mood. So I left it then and you know, it didn't bother again. But um, the curiosity was there. So when she died, then I picked up courage and I got her birth cert from Northern Ireland. And lo and behold, um, where it stated name of father, that was blank. And I knew by then from doing a bit of local history and that, that that meant, you know, that she was illegitimate. Now she carried that, what she thought as a shame mm. all her life. And it's only then when um, I decided to, uh, I did a history course, a local history course, where I got a minute a certificate, it was a year-long course, uh, part-time, and I absolutely loved it because our teacher was absolutely passionate about uh, local history. He, he reckoned that uh, there was more history went on in your own backyard than their did nationwide, because that's where the real history is mm. and where you can learn stuff. And I believe myself that children in school, for history, that should be brought in as well, because all of a sudden your eyes are opened and your ears are opened to think that your granddad or your great-granddad was involved in, in any part of uh, the, the War of Independence or anything like that. That's where the interest will come in and kids will listen. And I did many projects in our own national school uh, with uh, where our four children went to. They used to do historical projects and I would help them with that. And it, it's unbelievable how interested they were in it. And they want to know absolutely everything and wouldn't let it pipe up. I have a cousin, I have a cousin, I have a cousin. Oh, oh, my, my dad, no, my, my granddad has a cousin that, that was in that war and this kind of thing, you know. So it brings it alive for them. So I was intrigued with that. And um, uh, for the history course, for the final exam, we had to do uh, we had to do a chapter for a book that was being published. It was for, it's just a small parish in, in County Gaul. It's called Kilcurtain. And um, they were bringing out a book. And uh, each of us in the class had to do a chapter. So what I picked uh, was the local landlord in the area. And now he's a brilliant tutor. He told us how to research. He told us where to go, where you get something in the National Ar Archives, the National Library, you know, the different places to go to. And what he instilled in us really was, you might go to the National Archives, they won't give it, you mightn't find it there. He said, but don't give up. Never say, never say it's not there. There's other ways around it. Always, mm -hmm. always keep digging, digging until you get something. And you ask yourself if if a record isn't there, you ask yourself why isn't it there? So I think I used that in my years research on the children's home, and I needed it because my goodness, I wasn't getting records from any of the authorities or any of the any of the the church or state. I wasn't getting records because I didn't want to give them out. So, however, uh, going back to uh, how I got involved in the home. Um, after doing that chapter in the book, I was asked by our local historical journal, journal society in Tune, uh, would I do a chapter for their book? They bring out a book every December. It's called JOTS, J-O-T-S, the Journal of the Old Tune Society. And so I did, I found another landlord in the area and I did a fair bit of research on them. They filled a full chapter, but by now I knew how to research. And that was fine. That went down well. And um, they asked me to do another one the next year. So. I, for some reason or another, the Tune Home came to mind. And I said, I'll do it on that. Now, I thought I was starting out doing a bit of history on the Bonsco Sisters, on the home, how, how they came there, where the children went, and a nice little story for the jobs. But uh, when I went searching in Tune I thought all I had to do was go to our local library and I'd get all I wanted. But there wasn't a thing there, not a thing. And then I said, uh, I asked the Bonsco sisters who ran the, or, who ran the home in Tune from 1925 until 1961. And um, the reply I got was that they had no records, that their sisters were gone from there since 1961. That's when the home closed. And had absolutely nothing. Anything they had was personal records. It was a ledger with all the mothers and babies' names in it. And uh, that was gone to the Western Health Board. So um, that's fine. I said then I went to the Western Health Board and the Galway County Council, and I got the same story. They had no other records, only private records, 
and that I wouldn't be allowed to look at those that were private. And of course, I said I didn't want private stuff. I wanted just basic information on how the home was run and maybe who worked there, etc., etc. And um, it took me a long time, really, to find somebody that would give me a scrap of information. And um, it wasn't really, I mean, the, my, the course of events was changing from doing a little bit of history on the home. It was turning into a kind of a, oh, it was almost, uh, it was, first of all, it was a mystery. Why wasn't there any records at all? And from more or less hints and rumours from people, uh, there was a story building that this home was not a nice place at all. And then what really catapulted me into my deep research was when I went around the housing estate and I was asking people would they know anything. And someone, it was actually the caretaker of the Chum graveyard. And um, I, have, of course, I went to him then to see whether any of the children died in the home. And he said, um, oh, he said that a lot of children died in that home. And uh, he said, they're not buried here, though, because he had the book from, you know, he said, there's no home babies buried in this in the Chum graveyard. It's only across the road where the home was. And um, he said, come over here and I'll show you over to the, 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 the grounds of the home. And uh, where there's a large, huge playground in a corner there, he brought me over to it. There was a lovely protected area with a wall around it and a grotto. Oh, and I said, what's that? And he said, he said, um, that's where two little boys found bones there in 1975 when the houses were nearly constructed. They came across a kind of a pit, he said, and he said, the, lad, the two little boys, he said, was bones that they came across and they were the bones of children. And um, I was absolutely amazed at this. And I said, who could have been? I said, uh, was it the nuns that put up the grotto then? Because I knew they hadn't told me about it. And he said, no, he said, he said um, this was a wilderness, he said, in, in, when, the, when, the home, when the houses were going up. He said, it was the, the people here in these houses when they heard that the lads found bones. He said, they thought they were famine, they were, they were children from the famine times. He said, that, that was really what people thought here in the area. And because there were children's bones and because it was a wilderness and no cross, no, absolutely nothing to show it was uh, those children buried there. And um, they said they put up the, they have it nice, they leveled it, they got the council to level it. And they said a local man here put up a little brochure. And uh, the women in the area, they kept, they kept the garden lovely and they kept flowers and everything, they got the council to cordon it up. So that was that. And uh, it was uh, something struck me as odd because uh, I've been examining maps of the area part of my research, uh, old maps of the area. And I asked again about where exactly the boys found the bones. And I, I actually spoke to the two lads, um, Barry, Barry Sweeney and Franny Hopkins. They were about 10 and 12 at the time. So I called on them and they gave me their story. And they showed me the spot exactly uh, where they found. Because that was kind of a pit or something. They thought it was a burial vault or something. And uh, I examined the maps and I overlaid a lot of the maps. And by doing that, uh, where Franny and uh, Barry found the bones, that was exactly, it was an old sewage tank for the workhouse. Now we have to remember that we're talking about uh, the workhouse is there since 18, 1846, I think, yeah. And um, it's the same building that the nuns moved into. It's the same seven acres of land. And uh, that's, uh, that's really when I started delving into, into deeper research because they said there were a lot of bones there. And I, I, I came up with the theory that no, this was a working sewage tank at the time of the famine, at the time of the workhouse, and you couldn't, they couldn't have buried children in a working sewage tank. So I got awful suspicious then, and the next move I made was, okay, um, the, the, um, the thing was, are these home babies that could be buried here? And if they are, how did that happen? And would there be many of them? So again, I did, going back to the nuns again, they still denied knowing anything about a graveyard or anything. And the same with the county council, although they owned the land and they weren't forthcoming with any information. They said they knew nothing about burials. And okay, I had to have proof. It was no good myself going out making these statements and what, what my theories were. So I wanted to be birthed at marriages in Galway. And I know that they're public records and there's no problem. They're open to everyone. They're open records to the public. And I asked the kind, very nice people there. I said, I want to find out how many children, babies died in the home in Chum between 1925 and 1961. Now I know a lot of babies died in Chum, but there were tough times, but I wanted the number of babies who died in the home itself and that they were home babies. So the staggering number of this why we call them the 796, 
I got seven, nine, six death certs of babies, children up to six years of age, but one nine. Most of them were around the toddler stage, around a year and a half. There were 796 death certs, what they died of, the date they died. And I was just, I, I was just, I was just absolutely flattened when I saw that. And I said, where are these babies? I got back to the nuns again. I got the same answer. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what, who they were or why they were, they didn't know anything about deaths. That's what I was told, which wasn't true. We know it now. So to take it from there then, I knew I had seven, nine, six deaths. I had the proof. Now where were they buried? Then I, I, I went back to the sisters. They said the grandparents of the children probably brought the babies home and buried them in their own graveyards. And I got the theory as well that maybe they were crossing the Chum graveyard. Maybe this, maybe that, maybe the other. Maybe they weren't baptized and they're out in Lishings around the country. Mm. Now then I found out that they were baptized. There are baptism sorts for all the babies. They're in the, the, the parish centre in Chum. Now next step then, I had, to, I had to check other graveyards all around the county Galway as best I could. Uh, lucky for me, uh, the the, uh, the library in Galway, the old library, uh, they had a lot of the graveyard books uh, taken in and they were digitizing them. So all the archivists there had to do was to go through a computer. I gave her, um, I didn't give her the 796 names because I couldn't ask her to do that. I gave her a good proportion of names from different areas that, that I knew where the mothers were from. So she cross-checked and uh, she put the number of uh, deaths I gave her. She said she couldn't, there was no record in the, in the cemeteries around the area. So I was back to Chum again. I said, these babies have to be here. And then I was saying the nuns couldn't put them in the working sewage tank, okay? So lo and behold, going through the old uh, newspapers, the archives, the, online. Lucky enough now, well, now they're online. Mm. At that time, I had to go to the library in Chum and go through, go through different, every, everything to do with the home. I, I looked up on the old news, especially the Chum Herds and the Connacht Tribune. I looked up, and um, lo and behold, in 1936, I noticed that the um, the Chum Home joined up with the main Chum sewer system. So the old Victorian system that was there in that corner where the grotto is, that had become defunct. So here you had a fine big open sewage tank, not in use. And that's, I decided then, that must be where the nuns started burying the poor little babies. Now, on top of that then, uh, I got the, the very, very crucial information from a woman that lives in Chum. She lived on that estate at the time around the playground. And uh, she said that when the boys found the bones, she claimed, and she's, she's spoken publicly about this on radio and television, but she, she, when the boys found the bones, she went over to investigate. And as she was going over, the ground was very rough that time. Nothing, I mean, the grotto wasn't there that time or anything. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of a wilderness. And there was a lot of tree stumps and everything like that. But when she went to examine what the boys saw, before she came to that area, she fell down through a hole. Now, she's sworn this. And she said what she saw, she went down a fair bit. I think it was, she might have been down one of the tunnels. And the women, she said, I went down so far, the women had to pull me out. And she said, as they were pulling me out, she, she said, hold on a minute, there's something down here. Now, what she claims she saw, she saw, said she saw bundlings all wrapped up, like loaves of bread, she said. There was kind of cloths around them, and they were wrapped up, piled up, she said, one on top of the other. So all that was adding up. So you see, it's, it, it was obvious to me then that, okay, the nuns started burying those babies in that massive tank, because I, I don't know why, how they could do it. But I mean, my theory in 2017, when the um, when that great announcement came from the Commission of Inquiry and Ministers of Home, they, in the, in the meantime, I think most people would know the story now. The excavators, or they they did examine the ground. They brought in the machinery and they found that there was a big tank there. Then they brought in um, archaeologists. We did a dig. We did a testing, and then they went down. So the whole area was cordoned off back in 2016. And they went down into the ground to see what was there. Now, what they found was exactly as Barry and Franny found. They found a chamber. They found 21 chambers onto that tank. In 17 of those chambers were bodies, little remains, piled high, one on top of the other. And there were, um, there, there were, little, there were little children. And they carbon dated them and they 
carbon dated them to the time that the home babies were there. So my theory was proven by the Commission of Inquiry and by the government. Now, at that stage, um, I thought, this is great, I'm finished this, because it was taxing on me, really. You know, it was tough work, and it was, it, 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 it was tough, and it was upsetting. And the most upsetting thing was that I wasn't getting help or backing up from the church or from anybody, from the county council. Not alone was I not getting back, backing up, but they were, they were putting obstacles in my way. They were trying to disprove what I was saying, and they were putting obstacles in my way. Now, that was in 2017, and I thought I could, I was off the hook. I did my bit, and babies are here, it's proven. They're the home babies, they're in a sewage tank. But yes, we're now in 2020, and nothing has been done since. The babies are still there. It has been promised that they're to be exhumed, that they're to be uh, reinterred. That, I mean, naturally enough, the survivors from the home who have family buried there, their brothers and sisters there, they want them out of the sewage tank. And yes, we wait. Now, I'll give you a chance just to give a few questions. Yeah. You said it was very taxing. And I remember when the story came out, and I think everybody in Ireland remembers. And probably people maybe weren't shocked, but when you were studying that and knocking on doors and um, going to the Catholic Church, did you get people to say to you, oh, my Catherine, you know, you're kind of exaggerating this story. You know, this is, you're blowing it out of all proportions. That's not true. That's... That couldn't have happened. Um, I didn't. I didn't exactly knock on doors in the area. I would go in there to the site in odd time, and people would come out, and they were kind of saying that they never knew. And I believed them. The people in the new houses there on the estate, a lot of them aren't exactly from the town of Chum, and they wouldn't have been aware of what was there. They, a lot of them mightn't have known the history of the home at all or what went on and uh, it was basically really and truly those few uh, words i got about home babies being buried there about barry and and um franny finding the bones it was more so from research and two and two making four and having to fight that fight for so long and having to what i did was really the media were a fantastic help. And I believe only for they came on board. When they heard that it was exaggerated a bit at the beginning, the news reports that 800 babies were found in the tank. That unfortunately came out first, which wasn't true. But what it did was it brought the world literally to my door. And they really harped and harped and wouldn't let go of it. All the countries, I don't know how many countries in Europe and in America, which mm -hmm. was fantastic. It got on all the but then again, internet really spread it. And uh, it was the media that came to me for interviews, for documentaries. Once, that, once, the, story, once the story broke in May 2014 by, on the Mail on Sunday, Alison O'Reilly wrote a front-page article, and everything just went haywire. Um, uh, for, for three weeks non-stop, and I mean non-stop, from early in the morning until late at night, I facilitated the media because I didn't mind it. I was exhausted, but I was delighted. Because I've been a full year trying to get this out in tune, trying to get the church to listen that these babies are there, they are there. This is before it was proven even. But the media took it on board and they were fascinated that this was, you know, could this be possible? And that's really, in itself, the media in itself brought the government to listen. And the Irish, um, I must say, the Irish uh, TV and radio were a little bit slow to come on board. But once they got to the Washington Post and foreign people were coming here for interviews and I just showed them all the research I had done. They wanted to hear, they wanted to listen, so I invited them all in because this was working. And next thing, uh, after 2014, um, in 2015, the Commission of Inquiry was set up in February 2015. And that was because pressure, pressure from outside uh, the world. Uh, when the story broke here in Ireland, uh, well, Fine Gael were in power at that time as well, and Indy Kenny was Taoiseach. Indy Kenny, for some reason or another, happened to be in New York, and he heard the story out there, and he was asked about it, and he didn't seem to know a thing about it. And that alone was fantastic, because that really stirred things up in the government, and there was a lot of hot debates in the Dáil. Uh, our own local representative here at the time was Colm Keaveney. He was shouting about the atrocities in Chum, 
So was Catherine Connolly from Galway, another fantastic support to me. And they were even, Colm Keaveney was sent out of the dawn. He, was making, he, made, he had the place upside down. He said, you have to listen. This is in tune. It's terrible. So he was ran out of the, the doll at the time. And uh, things like that <coughs> added up. And next thing, the Commission of Inquiry into all mother and baby homes was set up. And not alone for tune, but uh, I don't know about the burial site. There are suspicious burial sites in some of the other homes. 14 homes being investigated. But a lot of them have angel plots, at least. They know where the babies are and they're called angels plots. And there's some sort of dignity. I think uh, tomb really uh, was sparked off by the fact that the tomb babies uh, were buried in a sewage tank. That's how little they thought of them. And so, so many died. And a lot of the deaths were marasmus, unfortunately, which literally means starvation. Mm. So I don't know what happened there. Hopefully, it'll come out in the Commission of Inquiry when the final report finally comes out, hopefully this October. It's been delayed and delayed and delayed. But um, hopefully we'll have a government and hopefully that report will come out. As you said, when you started this, it was just an article for um, Joss. It was just writing a history piece on the home. But when you started to uncover the story, the families of the children who were buried in the sewage tank, did they approach you? Were they grateful for you exposing that their family members were buried there? Absolutely, they were. They were. Um, the survivors started coming on board. Now I didn't even know that they were living locally. Um, I was asked in the height of the media frenzy to give a talk at the university in Galway, and now that's my first time ever. It was easier. It was already talking from my table in my kitchen, talking to a camera, which I believed I was talking to one person. Now that wasn't hard. That hard. It's a bit exhausting, but I could do it. I was so delighted at the time to be telling them this and for someone to be taking an interest. But to stand up on a podium and talk to a, a large group of students was a bit difficult. But what I didn't know at that time, there was one man in that audience who came up to me afterwards and he said, I'm a home baby. He said, I had an awful time, he said. And he said, I would love to talk to you. So I said, fine, any time. So he said he knew another man as well. <clears throat> and I think he knew there were two other people up his area. I would love to talk to me. So they did. And that's the way it went. It, it, it happened very simply. One person knowing another person was in the home and knowing that someone was out there trying to help them. So by degrees, there was about 30 on board, uh, mainly men. There was a few women. And we used to meet here. It happened over a course of a few weeks because they were reading this in the paper as well, you see. And they were saying, I was in that home. And another one would come and say, well, I was in that home. And they kind of knew each other. And by degrees, they were phoning me and saying, could we meet up? And so I decided, would you all meet together? So I'd say over the course of a year, we met here in my kitchen about, uh, about once a month and over cups of tea and that. And at the time, we were mainly meeting. I was asking them, would they give their story to uh, reporters? Because I said, this is building. This is getting out there. And finally, you know, eventually, and they were delighted to do it because... The, 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 the gift of this was that they told me that I was giving them a voice because kind of before that they wouldn't be talking about themselves, they wouldn't be letting on that they were from the home and all of a sudden they were talking to each other and they didn't seem to mind when you have a group of people well, well I was in that home as well, it wasn't our fault and all this and uh, they were beginning eventually to loosen up and to talk and to talk more about it and to talk to media and uh, I mean some of them eventually well, one, one, one of them came on the Late Late Show with me, and uh, that was fantastic because that was a, a live program and he's going throughout the nation, you know. So that's the courage that they built over, over a space of a year. And uh, they were delighted to do it eventually. And uh, then we began uh, meeting ministers. And um, some of the ministers, well, Catherine de Bone was, was the best. So she came to Chum on several occasions. She came to the site, walked the site, came to the hotel and met with groups. And the groups were getting bigger and bigger, and their families came with them. So it kind of developed out of nothing. And uh, it went on like that then, and uh, it's, it gave them a voice, and it gave them courage, and it gave them a bit of self-esteem. So that did, was one of the good, the good things about that. Did this become your everyday thought? It was, because it was a, going back to my mother as well, when I saw those survivors, when I got to know them, I saw 
automatically the same trend in my mother. She had low self-esteem. She would always put herself last. And she hadn't that ability to communicate emotionally. And that was from her background. Because she had been illegitimate, she would have been a home baby up the north. I, I found out very little about her now because I, I just, some or another, her mother never got married and I hadn't very few records to go on. And um, I mean, she had, she carried that with her all her life. And I thought that was terrible. I would have loved to have talked to my mother. I would have loved to have got a story. I would have loved to hear about her hurt and her heartbreak. And instead, it was the trend, I suppose. She had the shame. And I suppose I set out to tell these people, it's not your fault. It's the churches and the state and the nuns that were You're totally innocent. Your mothers weren't to blame. I said it was society, the way you were frowned on. It's wrong. And uh, the shame is they were carrying, they were carrying that the whole time. They're still very vulnerable people and they hurt easily. And um, a lot of people, a lot of people have been damaged. But um, thankfully, most of the people that I deal with, they're, it has strengthened them. They've found strength in this and, uh, and strength and hope. And we're all waiting for an apology from all sides. Everyone, they must apologize to these people. In reality, if you didn't step up, if you didn't decide to pick this article and write about a tomb, mother and baby home, the story may have never come out or it might have taken another six years. Yeah, I wonder, would anyone else bother her? It's just, there was a fire in me or something for, um, you know, to bring out, to bring justice to these people. And it, it, I do think, even I, I might never even realise what was driving me at the beginning. But I, when I look back now, I think it was because of my mother and because I couldn't reach her. And um, it, it's just, I, I saw the way she was damaged by by this horrible, horrible um, state of events that was in the country and how these poor women were so put down in every way you could think. And not alone that, as in my own case, it has affected me. And I can see women who left the home after having a child, after having a year, having to spend a year there. Uh, most of them went down to England. Now, a lot of the, of, of the new family that she has reared in England, she went to England, got married, had her own family. A lot of those, the next generation are getting on to me, asking me for help, wanting to know about who was their mother in Ireland, where she come from. And a lot of them relate stories to me about how damaged their mother was after coming from Ireland. A lot of them swore an oath they were never going to set foot in Ireland again. They didn't want to know about it or hear about it. And they wanted to know their mother's story as well because she wouldn't have spoken about it. Mm. And a lot of them never realised that their mother was Irish even. And uh, it's only when this story broke that uh, people were putting pieces together and hundreds and hundreds of people contacted me from England looking for information. Where will I go? How will I find out? And to this day, it's still happening. I'm still getting letters, emails in to do a bit of research for them. And I'm very, very happy to do that. And I do it voluntary, any chance I get to help anybody. So it's just made to make amends to them because they've been through so, so much. They're denied even their, they're denied their heritage. Even to this day, we know the story of the adopted people. They're they, the, the adoptive mothers, unless the adoptive mothers give them a bit of information, they haven't a clue where to go to, and truthfully will not give the information to them. No, I find in this whole entire story that the state really has failed the children of two and probably several thousand children in many mother and baby homes. And, you know, I can't prove or say it's, it's 100% accurate, but... I've always believed in relation to the tomb site in particular that there probably is more babies' bones spread across because it was a big site and unfortunately the county council seemed to decide it was okay to build houses on sacred ground, covering up more um, untold stories. What, what we do know. What we do know is there uh, there are more children buried outside of that walled off area. First of all, there were what they called coffins, burials. 
there, there would have to be between 1925 and 1937, say, because that, that sewage was working at, on, throughout those years. But we do know um, around the playground area, I believe, there was a G, GPR ground, ground penetrating survey, GPS um, survey done all around the playground, all around the grassy area, all around it. That was on uh, instruction of uh, Minister Zafone at the time, after the, uh, the remains were found in the tank. And uh, a report came out, they're not calling it, they're not calling them burials, they're calling them anomalies in the ground. And the anomalies are, well, it's a three foot by two or something. That's the shape of the anomalies. Now, th what else is that? Only a little coffin. Now, they weren't coffins either, they were boxes. And I've maintained that over the years, and I had said it and said it. They were boxes made by carpenters. Uh, yet the newspapers advertise that the sisters are sending out a tender for uh, white coffins with brass handles, brass crucifix, lined, etc., etc., etc. Now, I don't think any child got a coffin like that. They got boxes that were made by local carpenters because I have proof of that as well. So, so much cover up. You know, I know as well as the people at Tune that like that story when I was exposed, it wasn't a shock, it wasn't something that you went, oh Jesus, I've never, I've never had a suspicion or I, I've never heard or this is impossible. It's a lie. For whatever reason, many people in Tune did stay silent and some spoke up and you know, they have their own motivations and reasons. Maybe it's too hard to deal with. Maybe the thought of it, the thought of possibly having corpses under their houses or babies' bones is too difficult to deal with. I don't know. But, you know, on the other hand, I think families do deserve to have some sort of resolution. And it's a very hard compromise to say to somebody living in these houses, well, you know, your garden, there could be baby's bones under it or there could be coffins. It's very hard to say to them and turn around and go, we need to excavate or rip up your garden. And I know that was a difficult uh, sort of conclusion or decision that had to be discussed in Shum at the time. Their things would have to be excavated or more ground would have to be dug up. It's, uh, we won't know that until uh, that ground is examined properly. Mm. Uh, and that report, that for the, the Geophysical Ground Survey, uh, where it, where it uh, indicated what they call anomalies, that um, the next step was to be that the Bethesda excavations in those areas that have marked out in the report, and uh, hopefully that will come. As regards uh, coffins under houses, I've disputed that, mm. because when we look at the old maps, a lot of the houses are built kind of where the old building of the home itself was, because already they had the foundation for houses with mm. the foundation of the workhouse. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure about out the front or in the back gardens to say they found bones, I don't know that. I, then again, if some gardens had burials, wouldn't you prefer someone to come in and dig them up rather than have a baby buried out in your back garden? That's all I can say to that. Prove that, I would doubt it, but definitely, where the houses were built, it, it, uh, it's not, I, I believe it's not possible when you examine the maps that there could be any various under houses. So the probably is nothing to worry about. I think I read that in an article someplace, and again, as you said, there was a lot yeah. of false and exaggerations stuff came out. Oh, there was, yeah. And there are those. There, I know there are those. I know them. I know myself, and it's it's sad that do not want any type of excavation. Uh, back in 2014, they came out against me. And they went to the government to say that they did not want their site disturbed. They wanted the babies left there, whoever they were. And uh, which, I don't know why they would do that, because so much wrong was done. Even to this day, they're objecting to any excavation. When you think of your little brother or sister buried in a sewage tank, it's proven now. And the last report that came out in 2019, April 2019, it's very explicit. And anyone can get a copy. You can either see it online by going to the uh, Mother and Baby, baby uh, the Government the Commission of Inquiry site. There's a very, very explicit photograph that the archaeologists took down in that, down in that tank. Uh, it, it shows everything except the little bones. They're blacked out, naturally enough, in, in respect of them. Mm -hmm. It shows exactly, they've stated quite categorically that there is remains of sewage in those tanks, 
they're at the bottom of those chambers that we're talking about. There are those that were saying they were built specially for burying babies. They were not because there are shutters, according to the archaeologists, at the base of some of those chambers. Now, why would you build special chambers with shutters at the bottom? They were exactly, it was exactly chambers of a sewage tank to filter the water from the soil, from the, from the residue. So, and a lot of the little bones are covered in that. A lot of them are separated because of the water that's flushing in and out through those shutters. Some of them are in situ and a lot of them are mingled. And that's why they're mingled because it's blood water coming in and, and filtering through them. So you're having, there are so many little babies in there. They're being trashed about with the, with, when the water gets in. And yet we wait. Why, why do we wait? If there were babies of children, if there were these children and babies were found, if a, if a group of children went missing in children they found them there, do you think that they would be left for this long? That stigma is very much there. It's almost as if they're only the home babies, leave them there. They were so frowned on at the time. That's in people's uh, minds, I think. The church called them mother sinners. These were the babies. They were born into sin. That's impacted in a lot of people's minds still, unfortunately. They're beautiful children. They're beautiful babies. And it's horrific that they're being left there for so long. I really thought back in 2017, the church would come on board, that they would get them out and give them a decent burial. Chum graveyard is only across the road. Open up an angel's plot and put them there and make some reparation to the families who have suffered this indignity all their lives. Was there any point, Catherine, during the two or three years you taught, I'm going to stop now, it's too much, I can't do this anymore, I just need to walk away? Or, or did you feel if you walked away that the whole story wouldn't be uncovered or you'd be letting people down? It's uh, a peculiar one, that, because I don't know people's beliefs. I don't go by the church's beliefs, but I have my spiritual belief. I do believe there's a power much, much bigger than ourselves. I've tapped into that power when I go into that graveyard where the babies are. It's almost as if there's a cumulative wish from the babies to be recognized. How Franny and Barry found those was remarkable. If they didn't find it, I wouldn't know. It was as if they were crying out to be found. And... Um, Many a time I would get tired, I get frustrated when everyone's going against me. I would say to myself, what am I at? I don't need this. And I'm, as it's happened on so many occasions, I'd be willing, I'd be almost given up if I couldn't get the information that I needed. And it's remarkable. If by an email or through the post or from meeting somebody, I'd get that information out and over, which would give me a lead to follow something else up. It's just remarkable, but all I can say is, I feel like a cog in the machine. I'm only the, I'm only, my pair of hands, my mind is doing this for a higher reason. It's almost, it's like the COVID-19. It has changed the world. There's, I believe there's a hell of a lot more going on than we know about. And what I've done is just tapped into that. And um, I have a simple prayer, which I say, which, which I say I have my own beliefs. I believe in a higher power which I find out in nature. And I often say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I have one simple prayer. I say that and I mean it. And that's what's guiding me and helping me all these years. I mean, I fought against the government. I fought against the church, local authorities, the Bonscore sisters, those who are our spiritual leaders. And I have come through each and every time because I believe that I'm doing the right thing. All I'm looking for is the truth. And I've set my heart and soul in that. And things just seem to turn out because I have no agenda. I have no, there's nothing. I didn't look for this. I didn't ask for it. I appreciate all the awards I've got because they kind of, they kind of put pressure on authorities and government, you see. Mm -hmm. University, they're recognizing my work. And it probably turns me into a kind of an important person. Otherwise, it wouldn't take a strap of notice of me. I have a fair bit of backing from these wards. I found it very, very hard to um, go on podiums <laughs> and accept awards, to be honest with you, because it was never my style. But 
I realized these awards are they're being um, highlighted in the papers and the media again in the news on television and um, it's showing that, that that important people in universities and even the borough council in Ireland that they decided that my investigation it's, it's kind of um, it's highlighting it the whole time and that's what I keep doing that's what I'm keeping the home out there keeping the babies out there keeping this alive in case it's it's got to the bottom of the file again so that's all I can tell you something always happens to, to keep me going and there must be a reason for that it's just the truth needs to get out there the truth wants to get out do you feel it's changed you as a person since starting this journey or are you the same person you were when you decided I'll just do an article has it changed your, your moral compass or your beliefs as a person or made you stronger or weaker would you think yeah well I've got no 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 it made me much stronger and it gave me a stronger a stronger belief I suppose I would being the, the being from the home I came from my my parents I was sort of um, uh, orientated, disorientated from them. Maybe that's not the right word. But if you can understand that I spent quite a lot of time on my own in the fields with my animals, my dogs. They were my life. And uh, I couldn't fit in with the family. So I spent a lot of time outside with my own thoughts. And um, I suppose I always hated anything that would, I would feel for the downtrodden i would feel for the person that hadn't a chance i would feel for children who were neglected always and uh, i i had that mentality i was always trying to be fair fairness being fair is very important to me but i suppose um i have got a, a fair bit of strength that way i suppose uh, i was more um I, I suppose i was i had belief that the church knew what they were doing and that the, the god that they were delivering to us was the right God and that we could only find God through them. Now that has changed utterly, totally for me. I see different now. I see the church kind of backing off. More or less, this is my experience now. I do not speak for anybody else, only myself. Mm. I do not wish to offend anybody. But my experience, you asked me the question was that our local church backed off. It was a wall of silence and uh, they did not help. The, um, well, the Bond School sisters didn't want to know about it. I mean, these are people who are spiritual leaders, and I saw things differently from then on. Uh, they turned their back on the tomb babies. They didn't seem to matter to them, and that should have been the core of their teaching, to teach us that, or to say they're teaching us that. And yet, the most vulnerable in society, the most vulnerable who need us recognition and help, they saw them, they seemed to look upon them as nothing. And that changed my my uh, thoughts about the church, yeah. the way I saw things. From my again, from my point of view, uh, the church has got too fond of power, too fond of money, too fond of control, and it's not the way that the Bible teaches us. Oh, Jesus came on earth; he lived more or less so simply. Where where has it gone from there? It's just gone crazy, and I do think the church has to step back and just come down to our level. There shouldn't be anyone. In, you know, I mean, on one hand, they tell us God is out there, is with us the whole time. And then they tell us you have to come to Mass and you have to receive communion to, to, be, to find Jesus. You know, it, 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 it's so contradictory. I mean, look at a child. Look at a simple little child, so full of love and life. They don't know about God, but they're just, they're just so beautiful. And uh, I mean, it's in the it's in the sermons that they preach. Look at the flowers. Look at the birds. How the you know why why do we have to go and find God in a box in an altar? That's the way I look at it. And that that's my that's my faith that Jesus is walking with us every single minute of every single day, and we're we're, we're just trying to live our lives the best we can. What do you hope will be the conclusion from true mother and your own what? Are you looking to be the end result or rather what are the survivors of the home who've lost families? What do they want the most? Well, we're hoping that the Commission of Inquiry will bring out the results that they need. First of all, they want an apology for what was done to them and to their mothers. They want the church to say we're wrong. They want the Bonscore sisters to apologise. 
what they've done to their mothers. We want, they want the whole society, they want the state. They want the children and babies out of that sewage tank, no matter how you consecrate that ground, how you bless it, whatever you do with it, down it up, whatever. A lot of them just want a garden there that you can go and sit and contemplate, but you're sitting on top of the sewage tank, no matter what way you dress it up. The only way they can undo that is to take them little bones, to go to the trouble and expense, to take out them little bones, to DNA them that, well, a lot of the survivors want their own little little sister brother back and give it back to their mother in their grave. Now, that is a healing for all time, for all generations to come. It is a lesson to society and not alone. Some of them say, what do you want taking a few bones out? But they don't know what they're saying. They're little precious bundles. They want to give them back to their mothers. And that is a healing and a super healing. And uh, they just want an apology. They want, of course, if the three dress, I don't know. But uh, of course, they'll have to be. But uh, from the survivors I've met, and my story is that redress is always at the very bottom of the list, well and good if it comes. They would like the Bonsecourt sisters. I don't see if they could cover the cost, no bother. I don't see why the taxpayer has to contribute. I mean, they're a multi-million company. They have five huge hospitals in Ireland doing so well. They have offered a measly two and a half million. I don't see why they can't. If they want to apologise, if they want to make amends, they should cover the lot. What did they do? And back in 2014, the story broke. They had the records. They knew them babies were there. They got an expensive PR company and hid behind them. Now, that might sound harsh, but that's the truth. And that's what they did. And that's what I'm up against. So I would hope by October the 30th, when this final report comes out, that there will be an apology. There will be some compensation for all the people who suffered so badly that they will take the babies out of there. They must come out of that sewage tank and the surrounding ground as far as possible because it's just it's a lesson for for time for years and millennia to come that the june babies were looked after eventually and bring a closure to all this it will not do to leave them there you're tuned in to the open door on ross fm 94.6 presented by myself margaret McHugh, every thursday between 9 and 10 a.m the Open Door Talk Show brings together all communities from near and far by giving them a platform to share their stories of life as it was, as it is. You will hear the voices of those who speak about the good, the bad, what unites or divides our nation and what can we achieve by joining together with one vision of an all-inclusive plan.